0: This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele on 101.9 High FM.
1: Hello and welcome to tonight's uh, installments of Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrod Mbele. Once again, I'm delighted to, to be in your company as we continue to shed light on some of the very complex and difficult leadership and governance questions. I'm confident that our panelists, as always, will leave indomitable mark or contribute to us a refined uh, governance and leadership is our narrative in a country. Our conversation last week for me was quite unique in so many ways. Firstly, uh, it actually shows how ideologically different, uh, and how sharply different we are on a fundamental legislative and policy, you know, framework, uh, of the post 1994 political landscape. If you missed our show last week, uh, you know, don't worry as we can easily down- download our podcast. Uh, tonight's conversation can be dubbed as a second leg or continuation of what we had last week with Herman Pretorius from the Institute of Race Relations and Mukoki from the South African Chamber of Trade and Industry, as well as, uh, uh, you know, Eric Stillerman from the London, London School of Business Online. Tonight's uh, conversation centers around what we could refer to as social compacts, which underpin any social cohesion in, in any society for that matter. Um in you know, our conversation last week and obviously as a follow up to that, um, you know, it takes place at the backdrop of a senseless killing of uh, you know uh, black people in the in the States. Uh, this in my view nullified social contract in any society, under any any under any normal circumstances, people forego certain liberties on condition that social justice prevail. And the principle on these, uh, on, on, social justice, um, should not be violated, uh, uh, without any recourse. But we have seen in most instances, principles of social justice are continuously being violated against minorities, uh, in some, in some instances. Anyway, I want you to weigh in in the internet conversation as I think it's a very interesting uh, conversation. Uh, look at, um, you know, please go in through our website, uh, and download the podcast from last week and tell us exactly what you think on this very interesting issues. Our SMS line for tonight's conversation, is around, it's on 3451995, uh, and, and our telegram, it's uh, 61 61 895 And of course my email address is nimrod at and I, I'm sincerely hope that tonight's conversation will really elevate, um, what we, what we have started last week. Before we start, you know, t- the, the conversation, I had a very interesting book that most people, I'm sure they're aware of by Malcolm Gladwell, uh, a book on, uh, well, I think the title is David and Goliath, which speaks of principle of legitimacy. And I think I thought how profound is that title or at least a section of the book uh, as it as, as relates to tonight's conversation. In that book, Michael Gladwell speaks of three, three, three things that um, anybody needs to pay attention to, particularly when you are questioning or you're about to deal with legitimacy. Firstly, it is about uh, people who are asked to obey authority have to feel like their voice has been heard. Okay. The second one is that the fact that law has to be predictable, you know, across the board, irrespective of your class, status, your race, law has to be predictable. And there's a reasonable and there's a reasonable expectation that the rules that are apply today will be applied tomorrow without any prejudice. The third item uh, from Malcolm Gladwell's In uh, Legitimacy book is, is is referred to as as application of fairness. The, the implication is that if you are not fair or cannot be perceived to be fair, then people are not likely to stick to the social construct that they have signed up to. Which then said to me, legitimacy is fundamental about social social contract between and among people. In a South African context, if you like, social construct finds expression in the constitution, we all know that. We have uh, you know, you have a constitution that guarantees universal franchise, it guarantees freedom of expression, freedom of association. Over and above that, our constitution recognizes historical injustice, which has been perpetuated against majority of South Africans through colonialism and, apar- and apartheid system. This, for me, begs the question, how do we forge inclusive growth while appreciating the historical injustice against, you know, majority of, of the country in the men that are black? And how do we force sort a of construct, you know, that is quite transparent? So that for me is something that through our conversation with the panelists, we'd have to, you know, really interrogate. Over and above that, we know that, you know, we all are entitled to our opinion, but you know, we need to be factual in our, in our engagement. Um, talking of being factual, I pulled some statistics based on the, 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 the Research that was done by PwC on representation of executive at the JAC listed companies, in terms of racial representation, the the, the research by PwC argues that there's 10.2 percent of Africans who occupy, uh you know, uh, senior executive positions. 1.7 of uh, uh, you know CEOs are coloured. 2.2 percent are Indian or Asian, and 84%, 84.9% are white. So that is according to research which was done by um, PwC. It also goes to say that of that figure, 3.1% of, of, of um, chief executives um, are women. And clearly that goes to show that there's a huge underrepresentation of women uh amongst or, or, or in companies that are listed in JSE. The last source of of, uh, data that I pulled was the nineteenth, you know, uh, uh, the the commission of of, um, gender equality that that was done in 2019, entitled "Transformation Makes Business Sense." And according to to that uh, report, is that um, 65.5 percent of positions were occupied by whites, followed by Africans at 15 percent followed by indians at 9.7% followed by cowards at 5.3% followed by you know foreign nationals at you know at uh, 3.4 and basically you could you know these are these are statistics that cannot be questioned unless you want to go into research methodologies and stuff like that and that which is not really the point let me take this opportunity to welcome some of our colleagues uh, who will be sharing this very interesting uh uh observations and analysis on these critical issues. Um I believe we are joined in line by Justice and Justice, are you there? And good evening. Yes I'm here,
2: Doc. Uh, good evening to you and your listeners uh, and DJ Flo.
1: And 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 we're still waiting for uh the you know the uh colleagues um from I mean I think Hammond, Hammond hasn't joined us has he?
2: No, I don't think so.
1: Okay, let me try and let me try and get hold of Hammond. Um Okay, in fact actually still waiting to be logged, to be opted, to be allowed. In. Uh, let me just see how we can run us as well as Eric Stillerman and of course Eric. Um, Herman Herman. Coming. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh colleagues, thank you very much for joining us. <clears throat> uh good evening, uh, Nimrod. Good evening thank to, you, uh. Herman, welcome. Hi, Herman, can you hear us?
0: Yes, I can.
1: Okay, thank you much. For this, thank you very much for, for joining us. Earlier on, I'm not sure if you picked up my initial intro. Um, you know, basically I pulled out statistics that, you know, I want us to contextualize our debate around how do we bring about uh, inclusive growth in a context of structural inequalities in the country. So that for me is the basis for our conversation. I, I'm not sure if you were able to pick, you know, to pick up my initial thoughts. For an example, I pointed out that in terms of the representation of black um, executive at the JC listed companies, we're only sitting at 10.2% of, of Africans and 1% of, 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 of CEs are, 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 are colored and 2, 2, 2.2% are Indian and 84% are white. And the also, you know, on the same leg, the, the, the commission of, of gender equality has also done its own research and, and the findings are similar. You know, for example, they pointed out, uh, the majority of senior position are still remain white by 50, by, by 65%, followed by Africans, followed by Indians and followed by colored. So, so that's the picture that I want to present as a factual empirical evidence, and this for me begs the question, how do we bring about social con- contract amidst these structural inequalities? So I'm going to bring in, uh, you know, uh, uh, Hammond, for example, as a, a point of departure. What's your take on that, Hammond? Well, so I think... How do we think, bring about... Uh, yeah, yeah. Y-
0: yes, no, I, I think um, the, the question needs to be asked, um why do we have... Exclusive growth, or not even exclusive growth, but an exclusive economic situation. And I think on that score, we have to look at what has been excluding, um, especially black South Africans, from joining the economy. And in that regard, we, of course, have the legacy of apartheid that decimated Um, uh, many generations in terms of skills, in terms of being able to work close to home but then we also have to at some point ask what has been done successfully to address black unemployment and black opportunities in the last 26 years since 1994 and if you look at where the successes have been you find those successes really in the first 10 years of the ANC's governance between 1996 and 2007, I mean, for the years 2005, 6, 7, we got GDP growth above 5% for those three years. And if you think that one GDP growth percentage point equals to about 100,000 jobs, we created 500,000 jobs in those years. So we've been there before. We even Got a budget surplus in 2007 and 2008, a remarkable achievement for a developing economy. If you look at the unemployment figures, you see that unemployment started dipping in those years. And if you look at the, at the, at the, at the uh, 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 gross numbers of black people that joined the labor force in those first 10 years, it was almost a doubling of black people heading into the jobs market. So if we if we want to see what has gone wrong, we can acknowledge what has gone right, and we can be honest about what has worked and what hasn't worked. And if we look at the first 10 years of democracy, we see a story of, I think, success. If we look at the second 10 years of democracy, we see failure. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, what happened that we went from success to failure? And I think there you will find, of course, the 2008-9 global financial crisis. But you will also find the substantive change in government policy from the Mbeki manual economic approach to the Zuma Gordon approach. And we haven't deviated from that since. And I think if you look at the country now, you very much see the products where the country was going in a good direction, access to electricity, access to water, education, the building of new homes – First 10 years, a lot of successes on that score. Then the next 10 years, we see the decline, we see the malaise, we see the failure, and we need to understand why.
1: Okay. Thank you very much, Herman, for your, your initial thoughts on a very complex issue. I want to bring in the CEO of um, Saki, Ellen Mukoki. Alan, you want to give us your, your initial thoughts, particularly based on on um, Herman's uh, disposition? Helen, you're, you're still muted.
3: Uh, good evening to your listeners again, Herman. Uh, I think that, uh, and, uh, and Nimrod and your listeners, it's important to always have a very clear frame when we discuss these issues of uh, politics and, and the economy, the issue of people, uh, politics, uh, policy. It's very important that we also understand purpose. In other words, for what is it that we're trying to do something? So when we talk about the issue of uh social equity in the context of whether everyone has a stake and they can benefit from the so-called democracy dividend, we need to be very clear-minded in respect of what exactly is this that we mean by that. Because the difficulty that we will create for ourselves is to start to make this particular argument that says, oh, actually... You know, um, we, we hear the story that apartheid ended in 1994, and from 1994, uh, eight years after that, or something like that, 12 years after that, and the back years, uh, black people were doing really, really, really well. Why? Because we built 2 million RTP homes. We put in some water somewhere, some sanitation. We allowed people to have access to uh, early childhood free education, and there was a, a relatively cheap access to health care, etc. So we can say all those things as well, right? but we're not actually going to deal with the main issue of what we're actually discussing. Um, from a business point of view, this is very simple. We as business have made this fundamental error of judgment as well, of wanting to deal with the issue of transformation in the context of it being a need to comply with the legislation. <clears throat> There's a saying that says, people do not wash a rented car. All right, It's not my car. It belongs to Avis or Heads or whoever, a budget. I'm not going to wash it, you know, except when it's really, really so dead, it's embarrassing, so I don't want to be seen in that car. But ordinarily, I don't care about that particular car. The in lies the problem because we can't have a situation where we as business have had that particular frame of saying the government wants us to drive transformation. We'll do the basic things that we can do. We'll try and comply, use scorecards, use all these things. Then when we do that, we're not actually exercising leadership and we're not actually being in honest about the challenges that are facing South Africa. What are these challenges? I keep making this point all the time. In the last 200 years, less than eight non-Western countries have moved from being developing to developed economies. OK, and people, and you can count in there, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea, Russia, Israel, the old Hong Kong, uh, Australian places like that. And people are saying very, very strongly, I keep making this point, probably in the next five to 10 years, China and Brazil may well enter that particular league. The in lies the issue, right? What is the projection for South Africa in respect of what is this that you want to be when you grow up? And I'm coming back to this particular issue. Of course, if you assume yourself that in the next 20 or 30 or 25 years, whatever the period might be, I want to be a developed economy, and these are the metrics in respect of what does that mean, then you have to come back and raise this issue that we're discussing today. Is it even possible for you to do that? by leaving women behind, by leaving the majority of the population behind who happen to be black, because you did not give them opportunities to advance. You did not give them opportunities to develop at an economic level in respect of skills, in respect of human capital, in respect of technology, in respect of all these things that are conditions precedent that will enable the economy to grow aggressively, right? So my friend there at Standard Bank, had we as business driven, affirmative action, and driven economic empowerment, Standard Bank would be 10 times its size in South Africa alone. It's an economic argument. And why is this an economic argument? It is an economic argument because if you look at just two organizations in the world today who look at South Africa, who decide what rating we're going to get, whether we're investment grade or not, whether we're rated as a globally competitive nation, They measure these things that deal with transformation. The idea that you carry a high level of social instability, political risk and social instability risk in your economy means you get points deducted as an investment destination. The World Economic Forum puts together this beautiful document every year, which is called the Global Competitiveness Index Report. And they look at 12 pillars of that. Human capital comes in in the second sub-pillar, health and, and, and human capital. What does that mean? Then you go into a sub-pillar that talks about markets, that talks about the size of the market, the product uh, market, The labor market, not insofar as in the past, business has said, we wanna talk about uh, the cost of labor. It's not a cost of labor argument. It's the argument of labor efficiency. And when you're efficient, it means you're productive. And when you're productive, it means you've got skills. It means we as business have developed the labor force of this particular country to an extent and a degree that they can produce in a way that is efficient, that can add value to the product, that can be very, very competitive. All these measures, when you look at them in totality, what they tell you as business is that you've got to invest in transformation. There's no other way of getting around
1: that. It Thank you. Not uh, a uh, Yeah, <clears throat> uh, Ellen, can you just so hold and hold on to the thought? Sure. We're gonna go to the break in the next two minutes. But before we go to the break in the next two minutes, I want to quickly bring in um, Eric. Eric, we're gonna go back to the uh, we're gonna go to the uh, ad break in two minutes. What are your thoughts based on what Ellen has said and what uh, um, you know Herman Pretorius
4: have said? Thanks, uh, Nimrod. Good evening, everyone. Um, yeah, I think that uh, combining what uh, Herman said, there was a lot of merit there uh, in those first 10 years of the democracy. We actually did achieve certain things in terms of GDP growth, in terms of beginning the transformation process. And um, and then we went south, uh, as we all know, from 2008 to date because of the world's uh, global economic recession, as well as uh, state capture. And then I happen to then also concur with with Ellen that a win-win um, uh, uh, approach to growth and transformation is ideal. I think my contribution after the break will center on how do we do that practically and pragmatically with, given the crisis of, of lockdown and COVID uh, where so many businesses and economy is struggling to survive and it's highlighted the actual poverty, inequality and, 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 and unemployment and ex- exacerbated all of those. Um, and, 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 what do we do now? How do we actually get it beyond the theoretical or ideological bait? What's the way forward? Thank right. you.
1: Thanks. You know, maybe on my parting shot before we go, before you go to the ad break, let us be mindful of the fact that the Becky era was defined as jobless growth. We have had growth, but growth that did not materialize in terms of of opportunities for vast majority of people, and that also be, that is also a problem. And I I get a sense that we are romanticizing the Mbeki era without really understanding its limitation. We're going to take a break. Uh, we'll come back in a second. Tabo, let's take a break and pay our bills. We'll come back.
0: This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele on 101.9 High FM.
1: Welcome back uh, on a very interesting Tuesday evening. We're joined online uh, by Eric Stillerman, uh, who is the CE at London uh, School of Business Online. Also joined by Herman Pretorius from the Institute for Race Relations. Nations. Uh, Mr. Ellen Mukoki, who's a CEO at Saki, as well as Mr. Justice Ndaba, who is an executive at Knowledge Anchors Group. The the, the context of our conversation is the structural inequalities, and this begs the question, how do we, as as a collective, bring about inclusive growth while recognizing that the fact that the country is not where it's supposed to be? Earlier on, I pointed out to a number of statistical Evidence which suggest that we have not really moved a needle in as far as transformation is concerned. And the COVID-19, uh, scenario has just compounded the, 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 the gains of transformation that we've gone so far. Gentlemen, welcome back. Before we went to the break, I wanted to give Mr. Ndaba an opportunity just to reflect, particularly based on the inputs made by Herman as well as, uh, uh, uh Ellen Mukoki. Justice, your turn, please
2: yes um as i was saying doc i think uh, for me um uh, i think um hermann uh, asked the right question which is what i would like to start at because in in dealing with this issue um we have to ask the question as he has asked as in terms of understanding the reasons for exclusions and why the exclusion because we forget, we tend to forget that um, um, the issue of exclusion was institutionalized and because it was institutionalized, remember we're dealing with um, the issue of the systematic distribution of resources, power and opportunities in our society uh, to the benefit of a people, um, of a certain people to the exclusion of, of the other. So the point of the matter really is that if you're dealing with um, institutionalized uh, exclusion, until you deal with the nucleus, you you will continue um, dealing with the periphery of issues, and therefore would not address the core, and and you would continue to perpetuate um, those institutions, whether um, that is why you end up with people just talking about, no, let's transform this, or because each effort that you embark upon until you deal with the core of all these institutions, which means that there is a systematic institutional, interpersonal, internalized effort, uh, which is quite structural, that you need to deal with at the core. So meaning that until you deal with that at that level, Um, and also having a commonality of understanding, because you spoke about compact. You cannot talk about compact, because compact by its own definition means that you're talking about a small, solid, and strong or um, something that is arranged so that everything fits into spaces. So you need to start with agreement, In that compact, because unless you have agreement or at least alignment in terms of what that con- compact uh, constitute of, you will continue to have exclusion because the issue really is about where are the systems? Where's the systematic exclusion? Where are the institutional exclusions, which talks about uh, discriminatory policies? Where are the interpersonal uh, issues and internalized issues that you need to deal with at the core of that, and unless where you you, you have all of these, and I guess that's what Herman was talking about, is just that for most probably where we differ would be to what extent do we do we uh, come to the commonality of the agenda? Because if we cannot diagnose the problem the same way, or diagnose the problem and come to at least what are the issues that we need to deal with? We have not dealt with anything because then um, we we can have transformation where people are in positions, but because uh, exclusion is institutionalized, we could have black people in positions, but the real power still would remain with those that still um, are 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 favored by the resources and the power and the opportunities. And therefore it is up to them how they share those. So whether you go to, for instance, the key areas that of exclusion would, would be about the justice systems. Um, if you go to the justice system, how the, 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 the public health, education, banking, housing, you know, and, and, and how do you deal with these four key areas of, of ensuring that when you go to those, how to, um to, of people in let let me say let's suppose I have two boys that are twins one um, that happen to be of different color and they grow up um, in 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 one favored by this institutionalized exclusion one not ultimately you would see the difference in the prejudices that would be one would be favored by the institutions in different ways whether where they come to one. interact.
1: But maybe mm-hmm. just hold on a little bit there, Justice. But here's the thing. We have, I, I hear you've got structural inequalities. We've got legislative framework, which was, um, you know, developed to deal with exactly what you're talking about. Why are we not getting it right based on the legislative framework? We've got triple B, we've got affirmative action, no, no. we've got whole yeah. instruments. Why are we not That's getting that- it right? That that's, is fantastic. That's a million-dollar question. Yeah, but Why that question is right.
2: The manner in which we deal with that is totally wrong in my view, because even the legal framework, for instance, um, when you're dealing with institutionalized legal frame, for instance, in the we've always been saying that we have um, institutionalized Roman dutch systems and, and and in itself, what if you want inclusion, you want to then um, uh, 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 transform that system. I say you don't need to. You need to, if you want to regulate and legalize formally, you need to study from scratch and 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 legalize and in and and and, and institute legal frameworks that starts from the be- beginning, and regulates how people live rather than trying to to penalize existing institutions or existing legal frameworks because by their nature. They were meant to exclude. So okay. it, it doesn't matter how you, you panel beat that or you keep, uh, 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 uh itching on the edges, you will never really get a tr- a fully transformed legal system in okay, itself. Let's not,
1: let, let, let me, let me give on, on the same trajectory justice. Let me bring in Hamid, Hamid on the very same issue. Hamid, the question is, we have had on a basis of what everybody knows that South Africa's has endured years of oppression, years of colonialism in a party system, which left majority of people out. And we now have policies such as, you know, triple B and affirmative action and the works. Why are they not happening based on the statistics that I've pointed out that so far we, we, we have on average based on the commission of, of, of gender equality that was, you know, the research that was done. By also by also the PwC, we still have huge discrepancies in terms of representation of majorities of black people in those positions. What makes that? How how do we overcome that particular uh, ceiling to a point where we've got truly transformation and, and inclusive growth, as envisaged by everyone else? What seems to be the blockages, Hammond?
0: An, an awful policy. Awful, terrible policies that favor uh, a specific elite and not the real people who need it. But, Nimrod, let me, let me pick you up on something there. You speak about jobless growth and, and, and that is something that we've heard a lot about in this country. But I think it would be surprising if I give people the actual facts. In 1994, in, uh, we have 400, uh, 4.98 million black South Africans employed, then during this era of so-called jobless growth, that number more than doubles to 9.362 million. So this idea of jobless growth really isn't backed up by the facts. But if we're going to look at what has gone wrong, then we have to ask ourselves, what transformation are we really interested in? Are we interested? The only transformation I think we should be really genuinely interested in is transforming poor people to better off people. Now, in this country, if you are poor, the chances are more than 95% that you are black. That is a fact of history. Now, the problem is with BEE, you have this policy. If we're going to talk about institutionalized racism, we have on the law books a situation where I, a 28-year-old white African South African who owns no property, is by law considered to be advantaged. But our multimillionaire, Mr. President, Mr. Ramaphosa, is by law disadvantaged. So if we're going to make this a race thing, I think we are missing the point. Of course, black people have suffered in this country. Only an idiot will deny that. But the question is, at some point, surely, as Ronald Reagan said, at some point, we can ask for the score you've been play you you you've had these policies in play for how long what are the actual results and the painful reality is if we're going to continue with this 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 failed policy of black economic empowerment as long as we are going to try and make race the basis for helping people rather than need then we are going to see failed policies i would suggest what should go wrong what, what, what should go right is instead of saying we are going to make government empowerment policy based on the color of someone's skin, we are going to make empowerment policy based on whether someone needs help. Why do we have a proxy for disadvantage when we can understand disadvantage itself so much? The problem is that if we're going to make race the basis of empowerment policy, then we are going to sit in a situation where politically connected elites can pick all the boxes because they are black... <laughs> They do not have to the bo- tick the box of actually being disadvantaged. Why can't we just make policy based on what disadvantaged people, the enormous, vast majority of them being black South Africans, will actually benefit from? If we're going to ask now, give us give us a report card on what has worked and what has not worked, then no one can in their right minds argue that black economic empowerment has worked. Black unemployment is now higher than it. It has been. If it was, if it's now higher than it was in 1921, and if we're going to ask about what has gone wrong and what should go right. I'm frustrated by this constant insistence that somewhere someone must sit in a room with some government employee and design a plan as if South Africans are incapable of understanding what has gone wrong in their own lives and how to create their own opportunities. If you look at history and you look at the black, south Af- uh, the black Africans in the south of America who were slaves, probably the, one of the groups in history, the most mistreated and cruelly treated by any government. And you look at how they went from essentially 0% literacy to 50% literacy within a century while there were laws in place that from the government side forbade them to go to school. These people, these former slaves and their descendants managed to, on their own initiative, on their own steam, on their own skills and individuality as human beings, managed to improve their lives while the government was actively not involved in their lives. Why in South Africa do we have this nonsense where we can look at a period of growth where the government started spending less when we got a budget surplus in 2007 and 2008? A remarkable achievement when the number of black South Africans in the job market doubled. How can we look at our history, see the... And then dismiss them as we gave some people some water. I think that is incredibly insulting to the advancements that black South Africans experienced in the first 10 years of multiracial democracy to say that, oh, some people got some water. No, a lot of people. Got water. A lot of people got jobs and then things changed. And unless we are honest about what went right and what went wrong, we will continue making the silly argument that somewhere someone needs to centrally sit and plan the successes for South Africans as if black South Africans don't have the agency to themselves identify needs in their community and provide goods and services. What's standing in the way of those South Africans, those black South Africans who deserve the right To become prosperous is government nonsense. Unions with too much power who care more about those few, the shrinking number of people with jobs than the millions without jobs. We've got the minimum wage law that makes it impossible for a young black man to actually say, you know, I don't have a lot of skills, but I can learn. I can develop them on the job. But he can't go to an employer and say, I don't have skills, but I've got eagerness. I've got talent. I've got creativity because the employer will say to him, I cannot afford you. I must. We must afford someone else. If we want to talk about what has been inclusive and what has been exclusive, we need to look at the facts and we need to be honest about the fact that South Africans have been disappointed and let down by government after government after government for a hundred years. It's not that South Africans are these infantile creatures who need their lives and their careers and their economic prospects planned for us. Of course, the state can support where it needs to support. 60% of South Africans agree with that statement. But can we please stop treating black South Africans as if they are a special class of people who cannot make their own decisions, who cannot run their own lives, and government must step in? I think that is incredibly insulting, and it ignores every progress of data and of human life we have seen in this country.
1: Thank you very much, um um, you know, Herman, for that insightful, um, you know, thought-provoking views in terms of how you look at government. Can I quickly bring in um, Ellen Gorky and um, as well as um, uh, um, Eric in that order in response to what Herman has pointed out? Hi, uh, you know, the
3: we, we should not conflate issues um, and try and say a lot of things that have nothing to do with what we're discussing. The discussion on the table is simple. Black people have been excluded, women have been excluded in economic participation, social development, political development. This is an issue around power, wealth, and privilege. Simple and straightforward. You then have a history of that, of why that has happened. I spent most of my adult life as a senior executive, and I've served on many boards of companies. You and I know how this thing works, okay? If you want to drive transformation, you are not likely to be able to do that if you do not control the board. You will not be able to control the board of directors of a company if you do not control the shareholding structure of that organization. See, executives like me, they do what the shareholders want them. They do what the shareholders want them to do. So in the final analysis, what intends to happen is that we 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 minimize the importance of power, wealth, and privilege, and who is actually running these corporations, and who is taking decisions okay, around the deployment of capital, the investment decision, and whether we should, going back to your opening statement, whether we should have um, four women who are going to be at the board of level or when we go to the C-level suite, Uh, these are all the people who report to the CEO of a JSC listed company, whether we're going to have five or six black people there. These decisions are not, by themselves, objective decisions. They have an element of subjectivity. Once we've figured out that we're looking for someone who's a chartered accountant who's got 15 years' experience as a senior executive, then we go for those people that look like us. This is exactly the structural problem that we need to fix. Not because, from the side of business, we're trying to fix the black problem. We're trying to fix the fundamental problem of why this economy structurally is not performing at a level where it should perform. I said in my opening statement, we need to make South Africa a developed economy. Many of these places that I counted earlier, on Singapore, South Korea, their histories start much, much more later than the history of South Africa. The only thing that has stopped South Africa from growing this economy from addressing all these issues, is precisely the issue of excluding people from economic participation, from not giving them the skills that they need to do, from not taking the decisions. All economies are run on one uh, type of graph. On top of that graph, you've got what is called savings. These are monies that people are living in their bank. They put in insurance companies, they save whatever the case might be. At the bottom, of that line, you've got investments. In the middle, between savings and investments, you've got intermediaries. These intermediaries are wealth management companies. These intermediaries are stockbrokers. These intermediaries are the bank. These intermediaries are the bank CEOs and the senior executives who take a decision whether I am going to fund your project or I'm not going to fund your project. I spend most of my life as an investment bank and I've given money to people The decisions that we take at that level, whether we lend money or we don't lend money, are not only based on on the objective facts. Anyone who's going to tell you that they're lying to you, there's no such a thing. Yes, objectively. But I also need to know whether I can trust uh, Nimrod. And how am I going to trust Nimrod when I don't even know where he comes from? He didn't come to VERS with me. He didn't go to this university with me. He didn't come to that particular school with me. So in a sense, we need to take out the confirmation bias that tends to happen in the decision-making at the board level, at the senior executive level, at a decision-making level wherever there is this intersection between people and the economy itself. To simply argue a story that, well, you know, we're doing so well during the big years is really uh, trying to minimize the issue. We should take ourselves very seriously. We want to grow a South Africa that is going to be a, a South Africa that shows social equity. That is going to grow. You will not be able to grow this economy and address all the issues that the ratings agencies are downgrading South Africa for, and the World Economic Forum is downgrading South Africa for. We used to be like number 47. We're sitting way, way around the 60s now in terms of our global competitiveness index report because those pillars were not meeting, and those pillars can only be met because we're driving the issue of transformation for economic development. You will not be able to do economic development if you don't grow big markets in your own uh, domestic environment because so many people don't have money. These jobs that we're all talking about... Yes, these are not jobs that were creating value. These are jobs that came from labour brokers, people earning very little money, surviving. These are not what what.
1: Let's just put a hold on that because unfortunately we literally have two minutes, and I want to bring in uh, justice as well as um, um, uh, um, Eric in terms of the way forward. I hear there's been obviously debates, but concretely, if we were to put concrete step forward in terms of growing the economy. What are the things that we need to do? Justice, very quickly, and and uh, and uh, Eric.
2: Well, uh, for me, really, is 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 to realize that um, unless we grow, I, more or less, I agree with Alan. Uh, unless we make uh, many of the black youths uh, producers and um, advance and develop economy around making them more producers of products and services, we're going to have a problem because we're having a situation where we have 19 million people on social grants and, 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 and over 55% uh, unemployment rate. So we need to look at our economy structurally and change the, the fundamentals of that structure but it means that we have to really go out there and 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 have deliberate effort to make um young people producers and blacks in particular producers. We need to revive those factories in Hamanska. We okay. need to revive
1: those Thank too. you, Daba. We're gonna to have to give let's give um, Eric a last opportunity. We have a little amount of time. Eric, wrapping up please. Thank you. Please.
4: No, we need we need we need Practical, pragmatic plans forward food? to construct this economy out of COVID and lockdown and to make it inclusive at the same time. Everyone here is passionate and, and in a way highly theoretical. We need to get serious about how to do this practically and put our heads together as a country and move forward. And that's really, you know, my, my, my view on this whole matter. We can't keep going in circles of a theoretical, ideological debate. We need to put our our efforts together, like like I said last week. We need a National Economic Command Council to make this thing happen. We need to put a dashboard up. How are we doing on unemployment? How are we doing on poverty? How are we doing on empowerment, on transformation? All of these things, we need to make it happen. Thanks, Okay.
1: Thank you very much, colleagues. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, Herman, thank you very much for your time. How I wish we had had more time to engage on this very interesting uh, conversation. Uh, Helen McCook, also thank you very much for giving us uh, thought-provoking arguments, um, you know, based on your understanding of how things ought to be. Uh, you know, Justice Ndaba, as always, you're, you provide a, a fresh approach on very complex issues. As, we, as I'm wrapping up on my side, yes, I agree. Understand that we don't have to have. We need to put concrete plans on a table. The reason why we are failing to have concrete plans on the table because we have I, we are vastly different around ideological issues. You know, until we, we 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 put aside ideological differences and be more pragmatic on how you take the country forward based on merit and of course in the context of of inclusion. Which bears in mind historical injustice, because we cannot promote economic growth if you're going to ignore what has happened in the past. But inequality, we have to be, we have to be frank, we have to be firm in terms of what has gone wrong, fix what has gone wrong, and most importantly, we need to take decisions. And 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 it's about leadership that takes decisions that are not popular, popular until business uh, stays in a firm, in a maintain a firm position in terms of. It's position in relation to policy development. We're not going to see it anyway. So far, Ellen, in my understanding, business, business has been sitting on a on a side ways in terms of influencing policy decisions. Uh, we've seen so much rot happening in the past 10 years and business has been a beneficiary of that or some, some business practices have been benefiting out of it. We obviously need to get our heads together, concretely put together, uh, what um, Eric has put forward as a way forward um i think you know we we have no time or luxury of time to be debating our issues without necessarily putting tangible pragmatic plans on the table that take this country forward irrespective of race irrespective of gender we just need to surpass all those um you know boundaries and and put together a plan that will take the country forward and
0: and unfortunately we're going to have to leave it there because we don't have much time thank you guys and well done for your contributions